Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 9, and it's verses 13 to 35, and you can find it on page 64. We're up to the seventh uh, plague here, and this is the plague of hail to the, the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth." For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh, who feared the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down on the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials Still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses.
Good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan, and uh, I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's. We're in the book of Exodus this morning, and uh, it's a bit of a strange kind of passage. I spoke to someone this week who asked, uh, what, are you, what are you speaking on on Sunday? And I said, the plagues. And they're like, ugh, good luck. You know, we don't need luck, we just need God's help. So how about we pray to him and ask that he might give us ears to hear what he has to say this morning from his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that speaks with power and we pray that it might speak with power this morning, that we might hear it, it might speak not just to our minds but to our hearts and that you might see fit to change our lives. Amen. Now this morning we're thinking about power, power. And when I think about power, I think of something like this. Bears are powerful animals, aren't they? At their biggest, they stand seven feet high and weigh 350 kilograms. It's pretty big, isn't it? And apparently, the bite from a grizzly bear is the seventh strongest bite in all the animal kingdom. I've got a family who live in rural Oregon in the US, and uh, there are regular reports in their area of people getting up of a morning and finding bears sitting on the porch eating the cat food. Happened at a place literally 10 minutes away from where my family lives. These are not animals you want to mess with, are they? The official advice, if you're attacked by a grizzly bear, Would you like to know what it is? I bet you would. The advice says to play dead. Play dead. Literally lie on the ground and pretend that it's already claimed you. (laughs) Give up. Because you cannot outrun a bear. Did you know that? You can't outrun a bear. Because bears are twice as fast as Usain Bolt, the fastest man in history. And they're half as arrogant as well. Think about it like this. If a bear hits top speed, they're going to get booked if they run through a school zone. Think about that. They're so fast, in fact, that if a bear was standing at the back of church at the doors, it would take it less than two seconds to get from there to me at the front. Two seconds. You know what makes it even more difficult? If it's a black bear rather than a grizzly, the advice reverses itself. In capital letters, it says, do not play dead. Black bear, don't play dead. Instead, they tell you, grab whatever is close and fight off the black bear. Good luck. And you know what that means, right? If you are charged by a bear, you've got two seconds to work out whether you're going to play dead, whether you're going to grab your sleeping bag and do what you can. That would not be a good situation to be in, would it? In a showdown with that kind of power. Not really sure what to do. You know what's worse than a situation like that, though? This. I know it might look cute, but where there is a cub, there is bound to be a protective mother. And all the survival guides say that there is no more surefire way of getting attacked by a bear than if it thinks you're threatening its bear cub. Watch out, because bears are powerful. 
And power is exactly what we see in this morning's reading from the book of Exodus. This is the third instalment in the series we've been working through for the last few weeks that we've titled Exit. Now we've called it Exit because the book of Exodus is all about Israel's exit out of the land of Egypt, out of their slavery to Pharaoh. And the word Exodus itself literally means to leave or to depart. We're two weeks into the book, and what we've seen so far is that the person with all the power at this point in the story is Pharaoh, isn't it? The supreme ruler of what was one of the most powerful ancient civilizations in history. This guy is so powerful, he decides one day that he wants to enslave an entire people group. He just says a word. Instant slave labor. Pharaoh has wealth, he's got a military, he's got the favor of the gods. You know, the Pharaoh was so powerful that Egyptian religion considered him to be a god himself. He's not just a king, he's not just a ruler, he's God. And when the book of Exodus opens, as we've seen, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Israel has been taken into slavery by Egypt, and that is a big problem. It's a big problem because Israel doesn't belong to Pharaoh. Israel belongs to God. They're his people. And God's actually promised to his people to give them a land of their own and to make them into a great nation. So the fact that Egypt has the power at this point to enslave and dominate God's people is a huge problem. A problem that we heard last week, that God decides he's going to do something about. Enough is enough. And the first step on this rescue plan, as we saw when Scott spoke last week, was that he revealed his name, first to Moses and then to Israel. And it turns out that this God's name is Yahweh. I am who I am. The one who keeps his promises. The one whose nature is faithfulness. So Yahweh is coming to rescue his people. What happens next is that Moses and Aaron are appointed by God to be his ambassadors and to go to Pharaoh to confront him and proclaim God's word, demanding on behalf of God that Pharaoh lets Israel go. Let my people go. They make the demand on a number of different occasions, but Pharaoh doesn't want a bar of it. And he refuses to yield. He says this, Who is this Yahweh, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Who is this Yahweh, says Pharaoh, the God King? Well, Careful what you ask for, Pharaoh. It is a bit like God then says, well, you haven't heard of me. How rude, I'm sorry. Let me introduce myself. I can turn your Nile into blood. And uh, here are some frogs. Here are some locusts and flies. And here is disease. Here is the worst hailstorm you've ever seen. Here is some darkness for three days straight. And you know what? I can even take your firstborn from you. Just like you, Pharaoh, took Israel's children from them. 
My name is Yahweh. Let my people go. There are ten plagues in total, one after the other after the other, and each one wreaks a different kind of havoc on the land of Egypt. And in the end, after Pharaoh has received the full brunt of God's judgment, Israel walks free 430 years after they walked in. And though the plagues end up being the instrument that God decides to use in order to secure Israel's freedom, though that is the case, we would be mistaken in assuming that rescue is the only thing that's going on here with the plagues. You see, at its deepest level, the plagues are all about power, really. About power. Specifically about displaying and proclaiming and declaring Yahweh's power as supreme. And you have a look at the plagues, each one of them, all ten, put together, and they just demonstrate a, just a massive scope to this power that God has. Like he has the power to control swarms of creatures and the power to influence something as vast as the Nile River. He can wield weather systems like we read this morning and the solar system. And his power even extends to the microbial level, right? Scope. Scope. This God holds the keys to life itself. And in the final plague, we see that he can take that life away in an instant. And so in each of their own ways, the plagues demonstrate the Lord's immense power and control. They declare it. And it's really, it's hard to miss as you read through the plague chapters, really, because there's eight times, actually, where this repeated phrase can be heard, so that they may know that I am the Lord. So that they may know that I am the Lord. It was even in today's passage there in verse 14. So that they may know. It's interesting. He's not just talking about Egypt, actually. It's not just the Egyptians who needed to know the Lord, but the Israelites did too. Because remember, last week was the first time they'd ever learnt this God's name, wasn't it? And they'd been stuck in this country for 400 years, and it had been at least that, if not longer, since God had made his promises to Abraham. They'd been surrounded by foreign religions, foreign customs, for 400 years, and you've got to think that's going to have some kind of an impact, right, in shaping who these people were and how these people thought and how these people loved. And they're about to go into the promised land, which is a land filled with all kinds of other gods and idolatry and wickedness. In order to get ready, they need to know who this God is, don't they? And they particularly need to know that this Lord alone is worthy of their worship, amongst all the other options that there might be. So it's kind of like the, the plagues are the first lesson for Israel, as much as it is a lesson for Egypt. Which is why I think this whole section is presented to us like it's a, it's a battle royale or a showdown between the Lord and the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh. 
Early on, we see a few of the royal magicians, the first few plagues. The magicians try and take it on and say, actually, we can match this. It's funny, they don't try and get rid of the plague, which is what you'd think they'd need to do because it's causing so much suffering. They actually just do more of the plague, but even what they can recreate is it's kind of inferior. And in the end, they just give up. They just put their hands up and say, we, we don't know. We don't know where this power's coming from and we can't match it. And then when you look at some of the plagues themselves, some of them actually appear to be undermining particular Egyptian gods. So you've got the god Harpy, who was the god of the Nile. And one of the plagues has God actually turning the Nile into blood. He poisons it. Or you've got the god Ra, who looked after the sun. And what does God do? He, he turns the lights off for three whole days. You know, Ra goes on holidays. And then you've got Seth, the God of chaos and storms. And yet, here we see in today's passage, the Lord unleashes upon Egypt what is described as the worst storm in their history. Better than Seth's ever sent to them. And yet we see that the land of Israel remains untouched. Fancy that. These are important lessons for Israel and for Egypt that proclaim that this Lord is supreme, supreme in power, not only in faithfulness, but a power that surpasses all others. That's the first thing. The second thing that the plagues are doing here in the book of Exodus is judging judging the people of Egypt, and specifically judging Pharaoh. We have ten supernatural disasters, one after the other, and it's God's response, really, to Pharaoh's wickedness and sinfulness. And it's his judgment for Egypt having mistreated God's people, for enslaving them, for killing their baby boys. This is God's judgment against the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. If you think back a few weeks, there's been a lot of irony in the book of Exodus so far. Like in the, in the first chapter, we see Israel's growing so large, a pharaoh kind of freaks out and, and decides we need to do something about this, right? They're growing so large, we need to start culling them. And they kill a lot of the newborn babies, the boys. Genocide, really in order to reduce the number. What does God do? God says, oh yeah, all right, I'm going to bless Israel even more and they're going to have even more kids. And he foils the Pharaoh's plans. Irony. And we see it here today as well with the plagues because when it comes down to it, Pharaoh doesn't want to let go of Israel because Israel is free labor. Free labor is pretty cheap. And so to let them go would be to devastate the economy, or at least to put a dent in it, and he doesn't want to do that. But the funny thing is, is that he's so worried about the economy, but when when it comes to the plagues, what do the plagues do? They destroy, wreak havoc with the Egyptian economy. A Nile of blood, that's going to kill all the fish. That's going to disrupt the irrigation of the the, the fields. Or take the the hailstorm that we see in today's passage, that's going to destroy livestock, and crops, and the crops that do survive then get eaten by the locusts in the very next plague. And you've got everyone having to call in sick when they break out in boils. 
And you can't get much work done if the lights are turned off for three days, can you? Pharaoh refuses to give up a few slaves, and in the end, his economy is crushed. And he still has to give up the slaves. It's lose-lose for Pharaoh. Irony. All because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. He can't give in. He can't give in. I used to play a game with my uncle when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and um, he'd go to shake hands as I was saying goodbye, and he'd draw me in close, and he'd, he'd say, who's your favourite uncle? <laughs> and I, I knew what answer he was looking for, obviously, um, but I didn't want to give it to him, so I'd say the name of one of my other uncles. And he'd ask the question again, and as he asked, the handshake would turn into a death grip. And he'd ask the question again, and... Once he'd asked a third or fourth time, I'd be on the floor, like on my knees, wincing in pain, but still managing to whisper out the wrong name, (laughs) defying him. Because there's a power to defiance, a power that I didn't want to give up. And the harder that he squeezed, the more I resolved to resist, to not give in. It's pretty stupid the needless pain that I was putting myself through. And it's funny, though, how pride and stubbornness often blind us to the reality of the situation or to what needs to be done. And it's what I think we see here in the passage with Pharaoh. And as he's being challenged by the Lord, his defiance is stupid. It's stupid. In the face of this overwhelming display of God's power, he doesn't want to give in. He's stubborn. His heart is hard, despite all the evidence to the contrary. He can't bring himself to admit that this Lord, his power is supreme. And despite what it ends up costing him, what it ends up costing his people, he refuses to give in. And for that, Pharaoh is judged. And and Egypt is judged too. The question of Pharaoh's hard heart often comes up when we're talking about the plagues because there's a troubling phrase that we see through some of these chapters. A phrase that says this, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I think we, we read that and we're like, Really? Is that fair? Is it fair for for God to harden Pharaoh's heart and then judge him for having a hard heart? That doesn't seem fair to us. I don't know whether you've ever thought that before. I know I have. And so I thought it would be worth thinking about it for just a moment. What do we say? How do we explain it? One view is that when the Scriptures say the Lord hardened his heart, it's not so much saying that God was directly overriding what Pharaoh really wanted. But it's more just saying that God's influence was indirect. So what was hardening Pharaoh's heart was what God was doing to Egypt. It was his acts of judgment. And instead of softening his heart like they could have, the plagues actually ended up making Pharaoh's heart harder. That's one view. But what if we want to say that God actually did, in fact, directly influence Pharaoh's heart 
to turn against him. What could we say in response to that? Well, firstly, I think we need to remember that Pharaoh is not innocent. He's not innocent, not at all. He was guilty. And you know, he was guilty even before Moses turned up. He was guilty of crimes against Israel. He was guilty of crimes against the Lord. Hard heart or not, the plagues are actually God's just judgment punishing Pharaoh's wickedness. Secondly, we need to remember that nowhere does it ever suggest in any of the passages that Pharaoh had a soft heart that God decided to turn hard. He's never presented as having any compassion at any point, not for Israel and all the suffering that they're going through, not even for his own people and all the suffering that they're going through. All the evidence actually suggests that Pharaoh's heart was hard from the very start. And so what God's actually doing is taking what's already hard and simply making it harder. And lastly, you've also just got to have a look at those references as they come to us. They don't all say that God was the one doing the hardening. In fact, less than half of them point to God. For the rest, it's either left ambiguous So it's Pharaoh's heart just becomes hard. Or else it actually attributes it to Pharaoh himself, like it did in today's passage. Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So, whichever way you want to slice it, there's really no room for us to accuse God of being unjust here. And actually, actually there's plenty of mercy going on that's easy for us to miss in the way that God deals with Egypt. For instance, God asks Pharaoh to let his people go. He doesn't have to do that. And after it all, Egypt is still standing. He doesn't have to do that either. Like in verse 15 here, in our passage, he says, For by now, this is God, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But he doesn't. He could, but he doesn't. I think that's significant to remember. The final purpose of the plagues is to free Israel, to free them from their slavery. And so the plagues operate as an instrument of God's salvation. Pharaoh finally relents and he lets them go. Interestingly though, it's not just Israel's freedom, the end product of all these plagues. That's not the only salvation that we can see if we look closely at what happens. In fact, it's amidst God's ferocious acts of judgment that we can see his mercy still shine through. Take a look with me for a second at verse 29. Passage is open in front of you. Take a look. Chapter 9, verse 29 The hailstorm lays waste to just the entire country in a way that they've never seen before. But there's one place it doesn't touch. In 29, we're told it's the land of Goshen, which happens to be exactly where Israel lives. This is a common thing for lots of the plagues that are wrought upon Egypt. Israel actually is spared. So even as judgment is falling all around them, God's mercy covers his people with protection. 
Perhaps most interestingly of all, God's salvation and mercy is not only limited to Israel. And against all expectations, mercy is extended to the Egyptians as well. Six of the plagues come with a warning beforehand. This is what will happen to you. And in verses 18 and 19 of our passage this morning, God goes one further and actually tells them when the hailstorm is going to hit. This time tomorrow, he says. Set your watch to it. And what that means is that anyone who is willing to heed God's warning could escape the judgment that was to come, which is precisely what we see happens here in verse 20 and 21. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. They heard and they heeded. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Those who feared the Lord heard his words, heeded his warning, and were saved from judgment. And those who refused to listen who refused to take the warning seriously, suffered the consequence. It's pretty significant. Mercy given to Israel's enemies. Salvation for God's enemies. Where else have we heard of that happening? And in chapter 12, as Israel finally is given its freedom, walks out of Egypt free, we're told that many other people went up with them. Many other people went up with them. It wasn't just Israel. So we must assume that just as there were officials who were willing to hear the, the word of the Lord and to heed his warning, that there were Egyptians who saw what happened and who decided to go with Israel because they feared the Lord also. How incredible is that? Israel's captors end up being saved along with the ones that they had been enslaving. Incredible. Amidst God's terrible and ferocious judgment, there is at the same time tender, protective salvation. Just like the bear, actually, who is called into action when her cubs are threatened. So we see here, the Lord comes to Israel's aid as they cry for help. And what is seen as ferocious and devastating to the one who is posing the threat to Pharaoh, to the ones who are rescued, the plagues are a sign that the Lord cares, that he hasn't forgotten his people, and that his power reigns supreme. Friends, in God's word this morning, we see that our God is both fierce and he is tender. And by his powerful hand, he brings both judgment and salvation. And both descend upon Egypt. Much like the ninth plague of darkness as it descended upon the land. Thousands of years later, darkness once more fell upon the land as Jesus hung, dying on a cross. And once again, the Lord's power was being proclaimed. As Jesus died, all the fullness of God's just judgment was poured out, not upon a nation this time, but upon a single man, 
upon God himself. Jesus bore this ferocity of God's judgment so that at one and the same time, salvation might be extended to the world. Even more than the plagues of Egypt, the death and resurrection of God's Son stands as the greatest demonstration of his power. And that means that right now, right now, you and I, all of us, are living in the age of rescue. Living in the age of rescue. This, today, happens to be the day of salvation, where God offers to take his wrath upon himself. This is the time for our escape. But just like the officials in today's passage, you've got to be willing to listen to the Lord. Willing to yield to his power and to soften your hearts. If you are here this morning and you're yet to make that decision, to submit your life to the Lord and to allow him to rescue you, if you are yet to decide that, can I urge you to hasten that decision? To hasten that decision. For there will come a time of final judgment. Worse than any of the plagues we've seen today. A day of reckoning when hardened hearts will be called to account. And on that day, when final judgment falls, it will be too late. The offer of salvation will be withdrawn. So like the officials who heard the warning, who heeded that warning and escaped the storm, heed God's warning this morning. And embrace the forgiveness through Jesus before it's too late. What about those of us who are here and are already rescued? Who've already been forgiven? Who have tasted God's salvation? What do we make of today's declaration of God's power? Well, I take it the application for us is pretty similar to what it would have been for the Israelites all those thousands of years ago, as they were preparing for the promised land. You see, like them, we too are waiting for a new kingdom, aren't we? Waiting for a new kingdom. And like them, we too are surrounded by competing promises of power. Not Egyptian gods anymore, but all sorts of other things. Promises of power that come from our successes that we like to just pile up and up and up. The power of having a healthy bank account. The power of being popular. The power of being fit and healthy and living a long life. The power of having positive thinking or the power of building a lasting legacy. Whatever it might be, these promises of power often compete for our attention, don't they? And we go looking from one to the other to find that perfect combination that gives us security and happiness and well-being. Yet what the Lord wanted Israel to realize and what he wants us to realize this morning and to remember is that we worship a God of supreme power. Not just one power amongst a whole bunch of other powers that you can choose and chop and change, but the only true source of power. And this promise of his power will never fail us, for he is Yahweh, a God of faithfulness, and his promises never fail. So may the plagues remind us 
of this this morning and may our trust in that power never wane. Let's pray. Lord, you are supreme, supreme in all things. And as we've just been reminded, especially supreme when it comes to your power. May we praise you and humble ourselves before you this morning. And may, may we be those who hear your word, who heed your warning and who entrust ourselves to your saving power. Amen. Uh, as the band comes up to play, if God's word has stirred something inside you this morning, particularly if you decided that today is the day of salvation for you and you want to accept God's forgiveness and be rescued, can I encourage you? There are going to be people down the front here who would love to talk to you. They'd love to pray with you about that. It's also a great opportunity for others who want to seek prayer for things. So if I can just commend that to you, there will be people here who'd love to pray and speak at the end of the service. Please stand as we sing our final song.